Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. While this series emphasizes research advances made in systemic management of breast cancer, there's also a great deal of important information being generated on surgical advances, and I met with Dr. Mike Dixon for his take on some of the most important new data sets affecting local management. Dr. Dixon began our conversation by commenting on a particularly controversial issue, surgical margins. One of the biggest questions is how much extra tissue around the tumour do you need to take to say that tumour is completely excised? I get a few consults from all over the world, patients who've been treated and the surgeon's taken the cancer out, got clear margins, but the oncologist is unhappy and says, you've got to go back and take more tissue. It's the old NSABP versus everybody else theory. Yeah, I mean, we have pretty good data because we treat large numbers of women, and we accept one millimeter. And so is the NSABP. Well, the NSABP, what they say is, if the margin doesn't have cells, right. if there's no cancer cells at the margin... So you want a millimeter? We want a millimeter. Okay. It's just, we like to see some normal tissue. Now, do you get any better control rates with two millimeters, three millimeters, four millimeters? Almost certainly not. There's a fantastic review by Eva Singletree, and what she said was that wider margins will not necessarily reduce local recurrence rates. The only thing that we do know is that tumour at the resection margin increases your rates of local recurrence. One of the things that's really important to understand, however, is that wider margins produce much greater detrimental cosmetic outcomes. And if you look at the studies, the women who get the greatest benefits from breast conserving surgery are those who get good or excellent cosmetic outcomes. They have better quality of life, they have less depression, less anxiety, better body image. So the only purpose of doing breast conserving surgery is to leave a reasonable breast. And to do that, you have to walk that tightrope. You have to get the cancer out with a really a minimal margin of normal tissue, but you have to leave that breast looking as good as you can. Do you have any idea in terms of patterns of care, both in Europe and the United States, what people are actually doing? Yeah, because we did a survey of that. And really? what we found is that you know 50% want two millimeters or less and 50% want more than two millimeters. So it's all over the shop. And that's the problem. And you still see it within surgeons at meetings. And you still get people who stand up at meetings and say, you know, you've got to have five, 10 millimeters. And there's this all this issue about, you know, do you need a wider margin with DCIS and invasive cancer? Well, biologically, why should you? Because one of the issues with regard to local recurrence after invasive cancer is the in situ disease that's left. I think Mel Silverstein's a great guy, but would I buy a second-hand car from him? You're dead right I wouldn't. <laughs> 10 millimeters never made sense to me. It doesn't make sense now. It didn't make sense then. And even Mel admits now that even if you excise an area of DCIS with 10 millimeters, radiotherapy will still reduce your rates of local recurrence. So the fact is, the skill of a surgeon in breast cancer surgery is to get that cancer out and leave that breast looking reasonable. If you don't get the cancer out, or if you get it out and leave the best looking terrible, then you failed. It's as simple as that. Any sort of technical caveats in terms of the procedure and what you do? Yeah, there are a few aspects to that. One of the things that's quite useful, even before you start, is to get your radiologist to find out how deep it is in the breast. If it's one and a half centimeters deep, then you don't, when you're doing your wide excision, you don't need to scrape all the fat off under the skin because that leaves a poor cosmetic result. So you can leave the subcutaneous fat. That's the first thing. The second thing is when you've got a defect in the breast, having taken the cancer out, in most instances, you're better to try and mobilize some tissue from around the margins and close the defect. That does require more skill. It requires a little bit more surgery. But my perspective and our experience from our center is that that does tend to produce better cosmetic results because you don't leave a defect in the breast. I know the NSABP don't advocate that, but 
from fairly long experience working in a centre that looks after 750 new cancers every year, it is quite important. So what exactly do you do? The breastplate is fairly easy to define. And so what you do is you mobilise that breast tissue off the subcutaneous tissue away beyond the edges of the cancer, and you also mobilise the breast tissue from the pectoral fascia on top of the muscle. And if you mobilise it enough, you can usually bring it together. Even if you can't bring it completely together, you can bring it together enough so it closes part of the defect. The reason why it's important to mobilise widely is what you don't want to do is cause distortion within the breast because distortion in the skin leaves a poor cosmetic result. So usually, if you're careful, you can do that. One more thing, segmental excision, waste of time. You do not need to take out tissue beyond out to the periphery of the breast or down towards the nipple. The word is wide excision. There is no evidence, we looked at this in our own practice, there's no evidence that you get local recurrence more frequently down towards the nipple than out peripherally around the edges. What you've got to do is get clear margins, particularly radial margins. A couple of other points. Does it matter if you've got a positive posterior margin when you're down on the pectoral fascia? The answer to that is no. In our own practice, we've tried going back, taking further tissue. We've looked at huge numbers and see whether positive margins, deep margins predict for local recurrence. They don't. What it matters is you're leaving tissue in the breast around the edges. So if you've done a complete thickness, full thickness, up to the front of the breast and down to the back, you don't need to go back and start chiseling out muscle or taking out skin or fresh air or whatever else is in front around that. So I think that's really important. So the radial margins are important. One millimeter is enough. Now you said one millimeter. What's the data supporting that as opposed to one cell? It's just that there's more data on one and two millimeters than one cell. The studies on one cell basically come from the NSABP, and my reading is that the NSABP recurrence rates in most of their series are recurrence rates that we would be unhappy with. What's Eva Singletary's position? According to her review, she says you've got to take the cancer out, get clear margins. She doesn't actually define, however, in her review what she accepts as a clear margin. And what she says is that those studies that are looked at one or two millimetres have shown recurrence rates identical to those with wider margins. And in fact, many of the studies of one or two millimetres have shown better local recurrence rates in the long term than patients who've had wider margins. So her view is that when you've got the cancer out with a margin, then you and it's how you define that margin. I think the trouble that most people have with the NSABP definition is no cancer at the margin. It's pretty difficult even from the pathologist in let's take multiple sections to see whether there is a cancer cell at that margin. And so I think most pathologists who I've spoken to like some at least a little bit of normal tissue so they can see it so that there is some evidence that cancer has been removed. Therefore, we've gone for one millimetre as being the smallest margin you can measure, but a reasonable margin. What are you all doing about partial breast irradiation? There are some randomised studies in the UK of partial breast radiation. It's not caught on to the same extent as in the US. We're doing a number of studies in older women where we're randomising them, not the good-risk women, women with ER-positive cancers, completely excised, no negatives. They're getting randomized to radiotherapy or no radiotherapy. And there's a talk in this meeting supporting the fact that older women with good risk tumors probably don't need radiotherapy, which I think is really good for these older women with small screen detected cancers because it does minimize their morbidity. So are you using partial breast radiation off protocol yourself? In our own center, we don't do much partial breast radiation. Do you think there's a significant clinical advantage to it? I think it might prove to be a value 
for some women. But I'll share some information with you. We looked at about 1,300 patients that we followed up for almost 10 years who were treated by breast conserving surgery. And in that time, we had 45 recurrences. Interestingly, however, we got over 30 contralateral breast cancers. Well, the interesting thing about that is that how many of your local recurrences are actually local recurrences and how many are second breast cancers? Hmm, that's fascinating. Nowadays, with good surgery and good radiotherapy, we've pretty much nailed local recurrences in our own centre. Well, the local recurrence rate stays the same over time. The reason it stays the same over time is because, yes, in the first few years, you get local recurrences around the cancer site, but actually over time, what you're seeing is second breast cancers. And now in our own practice... Most patients who have a recurrence, in inverted commas, in their treated breast are actually second primaries. How do you determine that histologically or by biomarkers? There's a couple of ways that we're fairly certain the second primaries. The first and easiest is that they're distant from the excision site. We currently mark all our primary breast cancer sites with clips in the breast. So you look on the mammogram, it's a good distance away. It's got to be a second breast cancer. But Yes, biomarker studies, we look at the histological type, the ER status. And so from those features, you can have a fair idea that what you're dealing with is second breast cancers. Also, of course, some of the events that happen many years down the line, the evidence is that when you get past five years, most of the events in the treated breast are second breast cancers rather than recurrences. I want to talk a little bit more about clinical management. And particularly one of the things I think is interesting is this issue of the long-term history of breast cancer, particularly in the ER-positive tumors, because to me that has totally changed in how we view that just in the last like three or four years. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the things I find surprising in Europe and in the U.S. is the patterns of follow-up. If you look at what people do, they do what they've always done, which is concentrate follow-up in the first few years. That's rubbish. There is a very small peak of metastatic recurrences two to three years after but actually in the ER positive group, we find that when you get out at 10 to 12 years, you have the same rates of local recurrence as you had in the first one or two years. And same with metastatic disease? A little bit less with metastatic disease, but still a significant rate of events over a prolonged period of time. The rule of thumb we've been hearing now for a couple of years is maybe 2% a year for node negative, 4% a year node positive in the 5 to 10 year range. I mean, that's a lot of recurrences. It is a lot of recurrences. And what's for sure is you get more recurrences beyond five years than you do in the first five years. And so again, we're five, talking about ER positive. Yeah. Certainly five to 15 years, there are many more recurrences than naught to five years. And so we've got to start thinking differently, I think, on two fronts. First of all is how are we going to follow our patients up? Because this idea of concentrating follow-up in the first five years is crazy. And one of the things that we did find in our studies of follow-up is that the patients who had a local recurrence detected mammographically, their survival was much better than those who had a clinically detected recurrence. So the aim should be is that the focus for long-term follow-up with these women is you've got to do mammographic follow-up every year, probably for life. That's the first thing. And the second thing is clinical follow-up doesn't actually add that much. The number of cancers you detect clinically is really quite small. The other issue is whether or not delayed endocrine therapy should be initiated. Sometimes you'll have a woman who, for whatever reason, declined tamoxifen, you know, scared of it, whether this was like 10 years ago, whatever. You see a lady like that who's now five years past diagnosis, for example, She's doing fine, normal mammogram, et cetera, but maybe had a moderately high-risk tumor, bigger node-negative tumor, et cetera. Would you consider starting endocrine therapy just five years later? 
Absolutely. All the evidence that we have is it doesn't matter when you start the tamoxifen or when you start the AI, you still get benefits. There are two studies. There's a randomized study of patients who didn't have tamoxifen for a period who were randomized to either receive tamoxifen or placebo, and they did better on tamoxifen. And, of course, we have the data from the MA17 where the patients who were off who were originally randomized to placebo and then later started on letrozole. So now, those people had gotten five years of tamoxifen, though. Yeah, they had, but it still fits in with the idea that even if you have a gap off treatment, when you institute the treatment, it's still beneficial. But, I mean, that's critical because the scenario I painted, woman's never had endocrine therapy, but then the other scenario is what you just talked about, which is much, much more common, obviously, that the woman got five years of tamoxifen. Maybe she has been off the tamoxifen for five years. Again, somebody like that, how do you calculate what their residual risk of recurrence is and how do you decide whether to start an AI? You look at the factors that are associated with recurrence beyond five years tamoxifen. For instance, if she was grade one, no negative, I wouldn't start her on anything because their rates of local recurrence are low over a long period of time. Having said that, those women are at risk for about 25, 30 years. So the grade one, no negatives don't recur very often, but they recur at a small rate for a very, very long time. If she was grade two, we found that grade two, after five years, their recurrences were similar to grade threes. The reason is grade threes tend to recur early. They have a little peak early on, and then their rates of recurrence come down to similar to those of grade twos, but they carry on. So the grade two and grade three still have pretty much the same rates of recurrence after five years. So if she's grade two, I'd consider giving her something. And obviously, node positivity. Women who are multiple node positive still have a higher rate of local recurrence after five years than those who are node negative. So you take into account these factors. But the reality is that most women, other than those who are grade one node negative, benefit from prolonged treatment. The other thing is duration of treatment. Right. Five years is almost certainly not enough. I think that's one of the big lessons from ME17 is that breast cancer is a chronic disease. It needs chronic care in terms of follow-up and it needs chronic treatment. So I think we're going to be looking, you know, even if you switch women after two or three years to moxifen to an AI, you're probably going to need to give them five years of an AI. And of course, there are trials now getting ramped up to look at that. The NSABP yep. is looking at five years of an AI versus another five years, but we don't have those answers right now. So what are you doing in your own practice when you have a woman who's, for example, she started on an AI, now it's five years. She's not going to go into a study. You're going to continue or stop. At the moment, we're stopping but it's interesting that the women who are on, who are switching after two to three years, we are giving, we're really seriously considering giving five years of an AI to these women. So we aren't really joined up, I think. We still haven't sorted out what to do with these women who are on five years of an AI. The thing is, there's just no data in that area at the moment. Now, the reason you're stopping, how much of that is related to economics and regulations and how much is clinical? A lot of it in our countries is related to what we can do within the product license. So the patient says to you, okay, listen, I can afford this, et cetera. What do you do? The patient had a node-positive tumor. She's now at five years. You're going to continue or stop? Even within our health service, if a patient says, look, you know, I feel so much safer on the AI, please would you continue me? That would be an indication for continuing. So you're okay providing that there's some indication. What I can't do, I can't say I'm going to continue you. The patient can instruct me, if you like. You know, it's interesting. seems like a long time ago, a lot of surgeons were starting adjuvant tamoxifen. And then I think because so many patients, at least in the U.S., were getting chemotherapy, then they just started sending everybody to an oncologist. But now we do have this issue of these women who are out there. Maybe they got adjuvant chemo, but whatever. They're five years, they're 10 years, these kinds of patients. Do you think that a reinstitution or do you think that delayed endocrine therapy is something that could be done by a surgeon or should all those people go to oncologists? 
I don't see any reason why a surgeon who knows about AIs couldn't start it. And I actually don't see any reason why a lot of patients who are given only endocrine therapy couldn't be managed by a surgeon. I think the only need is to have it been discussed with an oncologist. For instance, in our own practice, what happens is all patients with all cancers are discussed in a multidisciplinary meeting with an oncologist. But not all those patients see an oncologist. If it was a patient who we decided, right, we're going to put them on an AI, then we would see them. We would explain, as a surgeon, the risks, the benefits. We would organise the DEXA scans, and then they would continue to be followed up within our environment. Although I think it can be valuable in those difficult cases for patients to have discussions with an oncologist, providing the oncologist is clear that this patient would benefit from this drug, then I'm less certain of those patients that all of them need to see an oncologist. I'm curious about your perspective about managing these women as a surgeon on an AI. You mentioned DEXA scans. There was some data presented at the last ASCO meeting questioning whether everybody needs an annual DEXA scan. What's your approach right now to looking at bone and patients are going to get AIs? I don't think we ever thought that patients needed an annual DEXA scan. I think many of us thought that those annual DEXA scans was not ever going to be feasible or appropriate. In our own practice, we've got a group headed by Rob Coleman and some of the metabolic bone specialists in the UK who've drawn up some very sensible guidelines. So you do an initial DEXA scan, and if the DEXA scan shows osteoporosis, then those patients definitely need treatment with a bisphosphonate. But also you give them the AI anyhow? We give them the AI anyway, if their cancer demanded that. If they had osteopenia, then we'd still give them the AI, but then we'd monitor them. If they had normal bone density, then we'd repeat their DEXA scan. But fortunately, we get some advice looking at their bone loss just now. You know, if you repeat it in a couple of years, if it was normal within a couple of years, then we probably wouldn't repeat it again during their AI treatment. So we have fairly good guidelines in the UK as to how we manage these patients with DEXA scans. And we don't do as nearly as many DEXA scans, I think, as you do in the US. And I think our level of practice is within the evidence and reasonably evidence-based. And Rob Coleman was the one who presented the data at ASCO from the ATAC trial that showed that, I guess, the women who started out with normal bones stayed, at least they certainly didn't become osteoporotic. Absolutely. I think, you know, when we first heard about the bone data, there was a bit of a worry and a panic. But actually, the fracture rate after you stop AIs levels off. And I don't think the bone effects have been nearly as bad as we thought they were. I always like to see how people take all the clinical research and translate it into what they say to patients. If a patient with normal bone density asks you, will taking this AI increase my risk of fractures, how do you answer? I say that the current evidence is that anastrozole will weaken your bones, but if you start off with a normal bone density, it's unlikely to have a significant effect on your bone density over a period of time. But we can take account of that because you know we can, at any point, do an extra scan if the patient's worried to check that their bone density is remaining satisfactory. So it's a matter of treating the patient as an individual, reassuring them based on the information that's available, but also listening to their anxieties. And if they're worried at any point, then you get another scan. And once they've seen the scans not change significantly, then they're usually happy. Let's talk about gynecologic and endocrine kinds of effects of AIs. Fortunately, I guess we don't have to worry about the uterus. No which is good. That's a whole thing with tamoxifen that we can avoid. What about hot flashes and other related symptomatology with AIs? Yes, you do get hot flashes with AIs. We did a study recently where we compared anastrozole and letrozole, and the frequency of hot flashes was about 40% and similar with both drugs. 
but only grade two in about 20%. So yeah, they are not infrequent. They tend to get better with time. There are some options for treating them, but none of the options are that great. But women do tend to tolerate them, and they seem to be less of a problem than some of the women on tamoxifen. So hot flushes, particularly early on, often settle down. Some women find they want to stop the drug because of hot flushes. And what's interesting is that if you switch them to another AI, they don't always get hot flushes on the second AI. And so if a patient got hot flushes on letrozole, I'd switch them to an astrozole and vice versa. What about arthralgias? Arthralgias are the most common problem. About half of women complain of bone pain. And that is probably the most debilitating, I think, of the side effects of the AIs. What's the typical syndrome? I'm not sure there is a typical syndrome. The reason I say that is because what we did is we collected side effects from a series of women and we kind of thought that we would be able to show it was in particular bones and particular joints. But in fact, every variety of joint was mentioned by patients. So although clinically I think you see more problems in the hips, more in the knees and sometimes in the hands, that's probably just because that's what patients use most. If you actually ask them specifically where their joint pains are, they can be anywhere. And it's more joint pains rather than joint stiffness. Again, it tends to improve with time. And again, if you switch from one AI to another, you find that they don't always get the same problems with another AI. And I think that's probably one of the most interesting aspects of our study. If you give patients an astrozole or letrozole, and you can get them to take both. A third will prefer neither drug. A few more, probably about 36% preferred anastrozole, and about 30% preferred letrozole. So most women have a preference for one drug or another. So most women, if they can't tolerate one, will tolerate another, which I think is quite interesting. You've done fascinating work that you and I have talked about many times before in looking at neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, what goes on within the tumor, etc., what about the clinical use of neoadjuvant endocrine therapy? We see a big difference across the pond, so to speak. What's your approach? Our approach is that neoadjuvant endocrine therapy for us is very valuable, not only because we've got an elderly population. Currently, between 40 and 45% of all patients with breast cancer are over 70. Most of these women, if they present with larger tumors, aren't suitable for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, but they are suitable for neoadjuvant endocrine therapy because with increasing age, becomes increasing ER expression. Now, this is with the intent of making them eligible for lumpectomy or just as overall treatment? You've got two options. In the patients who aren't fit for any treatment, neoadjuvant AIs alone will often give them very prolonged responses and allow them to survive, to die of something else, if you like. Do you ever consolidate with radiation and not do surgery? Infrequently, we have done it, but the reality is now... With neoadjuvant AIs, you can nearly always get the tumor down to a size where you can excise the cancer, even under local anesthetic. I often say, you know, they often say to me, this patient's unfit for surgery. The reality is there are a few patients unfit for surgery. Just many surgeons are unfit to operate. Or unfit for general anesthesia, maybe. Unfit for general anesthesia. And now, you know, the big advance, I think, in anesthesia generally is the anesthesiologists are much more supportive of surgeons doing things under local anesthesia. So my anesthesiologist will give the patient some propofol and some pain relief during the procedure to allow me to do very major things under local anesthetic. And the fantastic thing about these patients is they're sat up in the bed at the end of the day drinking the tea while the patients have had the general anesthetics, the younger ones, are flat out. So my perspective would be we know that the best chance of local control is to get rid of the cancer. So if you can do that, having treated them with new adjuvant AIs, then I think that's the best way to go. And only in those patients who 
have got so much comorbidity, they're likely to die of something else. Would we not consider operating? What about the patient who wants to have breast conserving surgery, but really that's not technically feasible? Again, this is where neoadjuvant AIs work so well. And they work so well for a number of reasons. First of all is, as I explained, most of these patients have tumors with high ER levels. In the high ER tumors, you've got a greater than 75% chance of getting a response within three to four months. And that's pretty high response rate, even for some of the more potent chemotherapies. So, and also very little chance of progression. Yeah, very little chance of progression. So the first thing to say is, within three or four months, you can get significant reductions. The other thing we're finding is, carrying on the treatment will continue to shrink the tumor. And so if you've got a very large tumor, even though at three months it may not be small enough to do breast conserving surgery, if you treat that patient for six and nine months, you will continue to shrink it down and point, if you like, of maximal response, you can then consider doing breast conserving surgery. The other interesting aspect about the pathology of neoadjuvant endocrine therapy is it produces a different pathological pattern of response. In over two-thirds of the women, you get a central scar in the middle of a cancer. And that scar, it's almost like the tumor implodes. It like pulls it in on itself. So you don't see that pattern at all after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And one of the depressing aspects of operating on patients with neoadjuvant chemotherapy as a surgeon is the oncologist tells you the patient's had a complete response. You go and take the cancer out, and there are islands of cells throughout your wide excision. So you have to do the same procedure you would have done initially then? Yes, and a significant percentage of women who you do breast-conserving surgery after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, you're not successful with your wide excision, so you have to go back and either re-excise or do a mastectomy. The chances of incompletely excising a cancer after neoadjuvant endocrine therapy are much less, and that's because of the pattern of response. You get concentric shrinkage, whereas in about 25% of patients who have neoadjuvant chemo, you get islands of cells extending over the same area as the cancer was at the time of initial treatment. What about neoadjuvant tamoxifen? Same thing as AIs? Less impressive responses, not quite the same biological effects. Don't see so much, quite so much central scarring, although you see some central scarring. So, you know, in the United States, typically people aren't going to think about neoadjuvant endocrine therapy unless the patient's older, 70, 80 years old. In your practice, let's say you've got a 58-year-old postmenopausal woman who has a tumor that's too big for breast-conserving surgery, strongly ER-positive, chemo, endocrine therapy, or both? We'd have a chat with her. She'd probably end up getting neoadjuvant endocrine therapy in our center. If it was a locally advanced cancer, bigger cancer, she'd get chemo. But if it was a... 4.8 centimeters. 4.8. Bigger cancers, we still have that threshold probably for giving chemo. But if it was 2.8, she'd get endocrine therapy. Interesting. What about Sentinel Node? Anything new? Or are we like hitting a plateau there in terms of relevant information? Hitting a plateau, but we've got our own spin on it. And the spin, first of all, is that, like most people now, we're doing preoperative ultrasound of the axilla. And so doing preoperative ultrasound of the axilla, our positivity rate in our central nodes is down about 10 to 12%. Because if you do preoperative ultrasound and you see an abnormal node, you core biopsy or FNA the node, you can identify a significant percentage of those women with involved nodes before surgery. And so they would get an axillary dissection. What's your overall node positive rate? Our overall node positive rate would probably be in the region of 25 to 30%. So by doing the ultrasound, you knock that down considerably? Knock it down to less than half, yeah. So that's the first point. Second thing is, currently, central node as practiced is cumbersome, time-consuming, and not particularly efficient. What we do is, I have an RSAC license. I have a radioactive license. 
and surgeons with appropriate training can get one. Why is that important? Well, the radioactivity is delivered to me. It's delivered in a unique syringe, and I inject it in the anaesthetic room when the patient's asleep. And if you inject that with a blue dye when the patient's asleep, by the time you've washed your hands and the patient's prepped for theatre, that radioactivity is up to the nodes. And so it really is a very efficient way of doing sentinel node because there's no disruption at all to the patient's normal passage to the hospital. They come in, they go to the operating theatre, they're put to sleep, and while they're asleep, I inject the radioactivity in the blue dye underneath the areola, and by the time I'm ready to operate, that radioactivity and the blue dye is up to the auxiliary nodes. Much quicker, much more efficient, dead straightforward, no disruption to routine practice, very cheap. Any technical caveats? Where you inject it, probably, I think that sub-areola is better than some of the other options. I know that it probably doesn't make that much difference where you inject it, but the big advantage of subareola, I think, is you don't have radioactivity or blue dye around your tumour when you're operating. And so we get very little radioactivity out of the body at all. It is potentially important for the staff in the theatre that they know it's a safe procedure for them and they aren't coming into contact with radioactivity. So subareola injection, massage, other than that, it works very successfully, pretty close these days to 100%. One thing to say is, do exactly what they do in New York. After you've taken the central nodes, have a feel around because there are a small but significant percentage of patients who have an involved node that you won't pick up by central node. And the reason is often the node's blocked. And sometimes you, know, you find the node's blocked because you've got extra nodal tumour as well and you will miss that by the central node. So absolutely, you've got to go in and just have a feel around. And nearly always, if the nodes are involved, the low nodes, one of the things to say is the reason people miss nodes is that they are often in the axillary tail or even in the breast tissue itself. So the place people miss involved nodes most frequently is low down, not high up. One other thing, average number of central nodes is between 2 and 3. Our average is 2.9. So if you're taking less than 2.9 central nodes, then you're not getting all the central nodes. 25% of all involved nodes are not the bluest or the hottest nodes. So if you just take out the one node that's bluest and hottest you will miss the involved nodes in up to 25% of the patients with involved nodes. Any thoughts about the future of minimally invasive breast cancer surgery? In terms of minimally invasive surgery, things like, for instance, you can treat patients with microwave ablation. I think it's kind of interesting. I don't think it might be useful for certain patients who've got very localized cancers, patients detected, for instance, through screening. But the reality is now that most of us are doing minimally invasive surgery you know, you can take cancers out through remote incisions. We're taking out less tissue all the time. Most of us now are doing sort of like scars which are cosmetically placed. All surgeons know about these lines around the breast called Langer's lines, but very few know about the skin crease tension lines, the dynamic lines of Kreisel. And when you learn about them, you realize that if you place any incision along those lines of maximum resting skin tension, that gives you the best scars and nowadays, I think with well-placed scars, minimal tissue excision, you can do minimally invasive surgery for most patients with small breast cancers. We have a mammatome. We've taken out various bits of tissue with mammatome, but I'm not convinced that that's useful for breast cancers. In men, it's useful combined with liposuction for gynecomastia. So for the hard tissue underneath the nipple, you can get that away with mammatome and then you can liposuck the surrounding tissue and get some very good cosmetic results without any scars.